0: Father, we behold you this morning as our king. Nothing can be compared to you, O Lord, and we are the household of God, the bride of Christ. And we praise you this morning with this knowledge, O Lord. We ask you to bless us and be present with us as we proclaim the word of God and praise you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to open to the book of Micah this morning. It's easy to find. You just look at these little tabs in your, in your Bible, in your Old Testament, and you'll find it. <clears> Has <throat> everyone found, the book of Micah this morning. I'm going to read a very famous verse predicting the birth of Christ in Bethlehem, where the prophet of old writes these words, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from us of old, from everlasting. Father, we praise you for the fulfillment of this prophecy and the presentation of the Son of God. We are your church, and we pray in his name. Amen. And so we have it the prophet, states the place of the birth. I have a, <clears throat> a Christmas gift for the church this morning. It's available to everyone, but only a true member of Christ's church can truly take hold of it. In truth, it's not my gift, but it's God's gift to the church. And it is this, that God's prophecies are God's promises. And no matter what is transpiring in your life at this moment, nothing Not kings, not kingdoms, not parliaments, nor presidents can keep you from it, for the Lord will have his way. Now, I am fully aware that people suffer various things in various ways. We have all certainly suffered. Some suffer from devastating illnesses, and we pray for them. Some experience lack and deprivation, and we see much of that in our society and in our culture today. we see the loss of loved ones and it seems too soon lost we see dreams dashed and hopes unfulfilled and maybe the philosopher Thoreau was right when he penned these words the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation have you heard that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation my gift to you this morning is this we are not the mass of men We're not on the broad road that most men take in this life. We're on the narrow path. For narrow is the path and difficult is the way that leads to life, the Lord Jesus said, and there are few who who find it. So my gift this morning is this, do not be waylaid by the difficulties, embrace them. They are part of the journey. And for those who find the gate and pass through it, They may go in and out and find pasture, the Lord said. It's a beautiful pasture. And there's a shepherd waiting for us to come in when we get there. For God has determined that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For his purpose will be established. Whatever happens to us along the way, God's will for us will be established. So the gift that I bring is the same gift that God prepared for wise men and shepherds. It's Emmanuel, God with us. And so we need to hold fast to our faith like Abraham did. Paul wrote of him, He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. So our verse today declares one of the clearest prophecies of the coming of Christ the King. And now what the prophet does here is he points to the place. He hints of the child's divine origin. He hints of the child's divine origin. He declares his kingly status in Israel. And as I ponder the history of the prophet and the place in history where Judah stood at the time of fulfillment, Bethlehem seems a very unlikely place for this to have happened. Micah calls this place Bethlehem Ephrathah. You've heard that. Don't be put off by the the, uh, designation Ephrathah. It's just a more ancient name for Bethlehem. It's interesting that the word Ephrathah means fruitfulness. And the word Bethlehem means house of bread. It's perhaps not incidental that Jesus is the first fruits and is self-described as the bread of life. Who would be born in the town that bore that name. Now Micah prophesied the rise and domination of Babylon that was generations away from his time. It seemed extremely unlikely to his contemporaries that that would happen. Yet Babylon did rise up and it conquered as prophesied. Assyria at the time was knocking at the door and eventually consumed the northern kingdom in Micah's time. Now when we speak of the northern kingdom, it goes back to the time after Solomon's death when the kingdom of Israel split up. And there were the ten tribes in the north, which was called Israel. There was Judah and Benjamin in the south that was called Judah. So Assyria came in back 700 years before Christ in Micah's time and swallowed up the northern kingdom, but the southern was spared. So Judah, under Hezekiah, the great king whom Micah served, was able to thwart an assault by Assyria, and to remain independent for a few more generations until, as we know, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered them all in 605 BC, still 600 years before the fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. And we can read about it in the last chapter of 2 Kings and in the fourth chapter of Micah where he writes, And to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you. And so the centuries ticked by. It does seem to get long sometimes as we're awaiting the answer to prayers or the fulfillment of a prophecy. People have been calling for the end times in our time since I've been a believer. And long before that, the prophecy must have seemed more and more unlikely as the centuries went by. And then the prophet lived and died Still some 700 years before the birth of Christ It always makes me wonder Does the prophet know the prophecy he's given? Does he know the time frame? Does he know it will be 700 years? The United States could have risen and fallen three times Before Micah's prophecy was fulfilled It's amazing when you think of it that way And so Assyria consumed Israel As prophesied by Isaiah and Micah Micah, Isaiah, Hosea They were all contemporaries During the Assyrian threat, a few generations later, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah, Habakkuk were contemporaries of one another in the next era, the Babylonian era, a few generations later. The Sabbos wept over the destruction of his beloved homeland, and he sung these words, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept, when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Matthew refers to the momentous event of Babylon, or the assault of Babylon rather, as one of the pivotal moments in Jewish history. And so he writes this. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon were 14 generations. And from captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Under Babylon, friends, the little town of Bethlehem was still three empires and 600 years away from hosting the family from Nazareth in the manger. And time ticked on. The Persian Empire came next. They conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., and the Old Testament comes to a close during that period. Micah becomes, or rather Malachi becomes, the last voice of the Persian-era prophets heard until John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness some 400 years later. So there's this 400-year span between the Old Testament and the New, when no prophet in Israel arose. And during those so-called silent years... two more empires would rise up. The Greek Empire under Alexander took Persia in 334 BC. They also acquired Palestine at that time. They acquired Egypt, even parts of India. All the while, Rome was gaining strength in the Italian peninsula and came in and swept up the whole of Alexander's fractured empire. The Romans conquered the Greeks in the 2nd century BC at the Battle of Corinth, That's the same Corinth that the Corinthian church was established in by Paul. And the Bethlehem prophecy was still 146 years from being fulfilled. When the time drew near for the birth of Christ, Rome under Caesar Augustus, who I read about this morning, or actually read about last week from the Gospel of Luke, Augustus was busy expanding his kingdom into Britannia. Cleopatra of Egypt committed suicide and ended the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. Cities were being founded by Augustus near Actium. Land was being allocated for veterans in Italy. Herod, the king of the Jews, is restoring the temple in Jerusalem and building an aqueduct into the newly founded city of Caesarea, which became the home and headquarters of Pontius Pilate. Caesar Augustus was busy on every front of his empire, including Palestine. Caesar's vision of Rome was indeed an ambitious vision. But Fred's ambition needs money, and money comes from taxes, and taxpayers have to be registered. Little did the emperor know that his census program would pave the way for an ancient prophecy to be fulfilled. And so it was his decree that brought the family of Nazareth back to their ancestral home at Bethlehem. Both Joseph and Mary were of the tribe of Judah, Judah rather, The family of David, the great king of Israel, a thousand years before their time. So Luke famously tells us of that. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So all the world went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So it came as unwelcome news to the reigning king of the Jews that a savior king was being birthed in his kingdom. Hence the genocide of the babies, very famously, in the Bethlehem districts. All the children, male children, two years old and under, were being slaughtered by Herod's Roman battalions in the districts of Bethlehem. You can read about it in the second chapter of Matthew. So the world was a busy place at that time, needless to say. But the Lord was also busy. He was fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Micah as to the birthplace of the Christ child. As I said to God, a prophecy is a promise, and even amidst the momentous geopolitical maneuverings of great men and the expansion of great empires, the Lord God of Israel will keep his promise of the birth of a child king in the dusty, insignificant little village of Bethlehem. For no detail escapes his notice, no event takes him by surprise, but all things are in the hand of the Lord. Now I'm quite certain that we're all familiar with the, <clears throat> the two different stories of the birth and the, of the Christ child, and Matthew's version carries the visit from the wise men. You know the story. They come from afar. We always see it on the Christmas cards. They come from afar, and there they are in the manger with the shepherds and all of that. And as you know, I don't want to get into an argument with Hallmark, but it didn't happen that way. The shepherds were there for the birth of Christ. And some years later, at least one year, but probably two, the wise men came. And if you're careful in your reading, you'll find that they came to the house that Mary and Joseph had appropriated to raise their child. And he was a child in this version and not a babe. Hence the two years old and under decree of of Herod. So the wise men come. They come from afar. Presumably they came from Persia and Babylon, which is Iraq and Iran today. Or Persia is Iran and Babylon is Iraq. The wise men, the magi, so-called, Say of Christ to Herod, the current king of the Jews, that they had seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Can you imagine going to a guy like Herod and telling him his successor is born, who's greater than him, and we're going to worship him. We're standing here in front of you, but we have no intentions of worshiping you. So note, the wise men did not come to worship the reigning king, but the future king. The so-called Christmas star attracted these scholars from other countries and other cultures. Whatever exposure they had to the prophecies of Scripture must have been exceedingly small. It wasn't as though there were printers printing out copious Bible versions like in our, in our time. Whatever exposure these wise men from the East had to the prophecies of Scripture must have been exceedingly small. We do know from the creation story, however that the Lord God put stars in the heaven, as he famously said, for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And so it's a good guess that these men, though not familiar with the scripture, did study what D. James Kennedy once called the gospel in the stars. And God heralded his truths in other ways to other cultures. Indeed, the psalmist declares it. Heaven declares the glory of God. And the firmament, his handiwork. And so I'll tell you this morning that what the children of Israel knew by the written word, other cultures discovered from the canopy of space and the lights in the firmament of heaven. Without a doubt, the miraculous events that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem has to be the most extraordinary event in human history. That's why it's 2022, because we started counting. When Jesus was born, and even in the Roman era, they began to develop new calendars based on that. And from Jesus, before his time, we count backwards. He is indeed the hinge of history based on this birth. They got the actual date wrong. You know, in the Roman world, there was no zero. Can you imagine? With all the great structures that they built and all the great engineering, they didn't have the concept of a placeholder we call zero. That came from India sometime later. So what the children of Israel knew by the written word, other cultures knew by the firmament of the heavens and the movement of heavenly bodies. Don't you find it interesting that when scheming old Herod asked his own religious staff about the location of the birth of the Messiah, they knew the answer? Do you remember these verses? I'll read them to you. As old as unlikely... As the Bethlehem prophecy was, remember now, was seven hundred years since it was given, and all these worldly events and movements came and fell, and it took all of Israel by surprise, with the exception of the religious leaders of the day, but they remained strangely unmoved and uncurious by the news. And so we read: when Herod the king heard of the birth of the Magi, uh, heard of the birth from the Magi, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and then he quotes our verse, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And so they quote our verse to Herod. Now, as we've noted, the prophecy was 700 years old. And so the religious leaders may, have known, um, may not have known when the Messiah would appear, but they did seem to know where he would appear. So the Magi knew when, right? And the star told them where. And the religious leaders who studied this stuff all their lives knew when, were uncurious about it, and had no idea Or knew where, rather, but had no idea that the time was fulfilled. It took the Magi of the East to declare it to them. J. Vernon McGee notes that these scholars of the East had access to at least one prophecy concerning the Messiah, however. The prophet Balaam from the the book of Numbers. And we read this, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And so the wise men had the star and according to some scholars, they had this one prophecy. And so Dr. McGee writes, the star and the scepter go together. It's the only place I know where they're put together in the prophecy of the Old Testament. I would make one more observation for you this morning. Concerning... The Wisdom of the Wise Men. It seems to me a seriously unwise decision for them to go to Herod with this news. They obviously studied the stars, but it appears they didn't read the newspapers. Herod was a heralded homicidal maniac who killed one of his wives and two of his own children by that time, and Augustus in Rome, who appointed him, once said of him, I would rather be one of Herod's swine than one of his children. Thankfully, the wise men had an angel and a vision to truly wise them up, and they went out of Israel another way. And so this busy, ambitious world of the first century paid little uh, attention uh, to the events that happened in Bethlehem. But what of Israel? How did God's chosen people deal with the prophecy Let's take our story back to its beginning, even before Micah's time, even before David's time. Take it all the way back to Genesis, in the patriarchal period of Israel. We may remember that Jacob worked 14 years to acquire the wife of his choice. Do you remember? He loved Rachel. Jacob's uncle Laban, not a good man in Scripture, tricked him into working seven years for her, and after the seven years were up, he gave gave him the other daughter, Leah, And Jacob complained. But the uncle said he couldn't marry off the younger before the older. That would have been nice to know seven years ago. So Jacob had to work another seven years to obtain her, which he did. And after that 14 years, he actually worked another seven years for Uncle Laban. Do you have an uncle like this? And in that time frame, Jacob made his uncle very rich. And in time, Jacob left with all his possessions and all of his children and his two wives and Laban sent for him and pleaded that he stayed back. You see, Jacob had become a sort of rabbit's foot for Uncle Laban, a good luck charm. He knew without him, the blessing of God went with him. Sometimes it's like that. But Jacob left. He left with all his possessions. He left with his children, his two wives, and his two concubines. The 12 sons of Israel were spread out between these four women. And as he traveled along the way with wife Rachel, who was pregnant, they came to the time of her deliverance, and so they had to stop along the way in a little town to birth the child. And so we read, and so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is called Bethlehem. And so for the first time, the little town of Bethlehem came into the world of the patriarchs of Israel. James Montgomery Boyce wrote of it. He said the first mention of Bethlehem, or this first mention of Bethlehem identifies it as a place of sadness, as the burial place of Jacob's wife, Rachel. A second reference to Bethlehem comes from the book of Joshua. It's a story of Caleb. You remember Caleb? Caleb and Joshua were not afraid to go into the land of the giants. And when they came into the promised land, Caleb claimed an area as his own. You could do that in those days. You could just go into an uncharted place and say, I like it, it's mine. But you had to defend it, too. So Caleb's second wife was called Ephrath. And so Caleb called the town Caleb Ephrath for a time. Bethlehem emerges again in the time of the judges from the book of Ruth. And so we read... Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. And he and his wife had two sons. Now if you remember the story, his name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. And Elimelech died, and his two sons married women of Moab. The sons died also. So Naomi decided to return to her native people. One daughter-in-law went her own way. Her name was Orpah. Some of your translations say Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm serious about that, and that's where she got her name. If you didn't know that, there's a fun fact. But Ruth stayed with Naomi. She said to her these very famous words to her mother-in-law, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. What devotion? Your mother-in-law. So it's a beautiful story of trial and faith. And by the way, isn't it interesting that you can just choose the God Of another person. I respect you and I respect your God. I'm going to follow him with you. Your God will be my God. It's a beautiful story of trial and faith, but in the end, it has another object entirely. You see, it's given to us so that we may see the Lord working in the lives of his people to fulfill what might otherwise be seen as obscure prophecies. And so Ruth marries a wealthy farmer from Bethlehem. Ruth and Boaz have a son, Obed. And in the end of this beautiful cameo section of Scripture, we read this. And some say the book of Ruth wouldn't be included in the Scripture if it didn't have this this last line. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David. And as you know, David is the great-great-great-grandfather many times over of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of David the king, And the saga of Bethlehem continues. She becomes the great-great-grandmother of David, just two generations off, and many generations off the great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ. From 1 Samuel, we read how the prophet Samuel went to Bethlehem to anoint a successor to King Saul of Israel, Israel's first king. He went to the house of Jesse, the one we read about in Ruth, who was the father of eight sons, Jesse brought forth the eldest seven sons, so they came before Samuel. Samuel knew one of them had to be the king, but as, he, as the seven eldest sons came before him, he didn't hear from God that this was the anointed one, and he didn't know what to do. And so he asked Samuel, is there another son? He said, yes, but he's not of age. He's a kid. He's in the field tending the sheep. He said, bring them before me. And so we read, Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him, speaking of Eliab the eldest. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so when David came before him, he heard from God that this would be the king, which was, of course, not great news to his warrior brothers. So David, the youngest, was tending his father's sheep in the pasture. He was brought before the prophet. He was anointed To the dismay of his older brothers, who were warriors in Saul's army, like Bethlehem among the towns of Palestine, David was a small and unlikely choice to rule a kingdom. But he was God's choice. David never lost the love of his native town. In fact, when the Philistines occupied it sometimes later, when he was at war with them, he cried out for a drink of water. Behind the lines, he said, Oh, that someone would let me drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. And three of David's men heard his cries and snuck behind enemy lines to draw some water from the well of Bethlehem, and they brought it to David. And when they brought it to the king, though he wanted it, he could not drink it, far be it from me, he said, O Lord, to do this, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their own lives? And so the history of Bethlehem among the people of God was a great history. Its history was to become greater greater than anyone could have foreseen except God's chosen prophets. And despite the ambitions of homicidal kings and ambitious emperors, God's plans do come to pass. So here's an application for you today. Leaders then and now come on to the political landscape to fulfill their own beliefs, to enact their own agendas. But regardless of the passage of time, and the complex agendas of corrupt and tyrannical and incredibly incompetent leaders, God's plans for the world of men will be finally and gloriously fulfilled. And you may trust in that. That's God's gift to his people and his Christmas gift to us this morning. When the Lord was born in Bethlehem, it was due, all due to the decree of a mighty earthly king. And despite the attempts of tyrannical kings, and perverted priests, the decree of God prevailed and will prevail. The word assures us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Surely, friends, it's not always the great movements of history where we find the faithfulness of God to fulfill his prophecies. It's more often in the seemingly small and insignificant things that we see him working. We have his word and the stories of history. To constantly remind us of the faithfulness of God, Paul wrote to the Corinthians of this very thing. He said, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. The word is ours. The prophecies are for our sakes, and the fulfillment of them is for our encouragement. Friends, life gets complicated and trials come and go, and so do leaders come and go. But the promises of God are forever. And no human agenda has ever disturbed the plan of God for his beloved. Seems like it does. We get all caught up in the luncheon after the service about what's going on in government today. All of it is in the hand of God, and I know that we know that. And I'm not saying we ought not be concerned, but I am saying we ought not be overly concerned. So take little note of the times and the trouble that it brings in your life, for God is ever working to fulfill his word and glorify his beloved. To this, the apostle Peter assures the faithful in the trials and tragedies of the moment. And so I'll close this morning with Peter's words where he writes to the saints, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away by the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, let us ever be mindful that your plan for your church has been prophesied. And each of us who belong to you, Lord, have a glorious outcome, despite the difficulties along the way. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for our leaders always, but whether they come to a knowledge of the Lord or not, the Lord's ways will be established in the earth. And we have all the evidence of your word in the history of man to secure us in this thought. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.